John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perhaps one of the first verses you memorized, maybe in the King James, which it's still hard for me to not read it that way, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It brings to a point this reality of love, the theme that is our Advent theme this week. And maybe it brings up a lot of questions. You know, perhaps what does love require of you? When we consider that question, what is it that love requires of us? Some would say nothing. Others would answer everything. And then because we like to argue, we would argue about what? Who was right? Who's right? Nothing or everything. We'd argue about who was right, who was wrong, and perhaps eventually forget what we were arguing about. Perhaps the question, what could that person, whoever that person is that comes to mind when you think of love, what could that person do to make you love them more? Maybe that would, maybe that would help us to see that the, the nothing answer is correct. Or perhaps it would give us an uncomfortable view into our own hearts because there was an answer outside of nothing. And that answer typically focuses on what? Not upon them, but on who? Myself. Perhaps the question, what are you prepared to give up for them? Would help us see that everything, that everything answer is correct as well. But also perhaps similar to the last counterpoint, it again gives us a distressing survey of our own heart. So maybe we want to maybe not go, what does love require of you? Maybe we want to step away from those go, well, what is love? Some have relegated it to a feeling, and it can wax or wane like the phases of the moon. Understood that way, it reveals more often than not that the one the one that is loved most greatly is often oneself. The more humble, and I would argue the more correct, have confessed that love is no mere feeling. It's a decision. It's one that's lived out and must be lived out every day. But what does Scripture tell us? Perhaps when you hear the word love, 1 Corinthians 13 comes to mind. Greater love has no... When we look at Paul's great, great survey of what love is, it often gets used at weddings, but it's not necessarily the context of wedding. It's the life of the church and use of the gifts. It tells us much about what love is like. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. That's a pretty simple statement. God is love. And when we consider that simple statement, we discover something that astounds. Because what does that mean? What does that say? God is love. That is to be, is. It's something that we don't fully comprehend. Because we might and do say we love. I love this. I love that. I love them. We, we use it a lot. 
We say and we do, we, we say we love, but not one of us would be so bold as to say, nice to meet you, I am love. Maybe you are that bold. I haven't met that person yet, though. Maybe you've just been waiting. So greeting time next week, let me know. God is love means not just that it's a constituent part of his character, but there's a fullness to it. Because God is one, he's lacking in parts. You can't separate him from it. He is fully love. And it's a holy love. That we can love and that we can know love. That's a reminder that we're made in his image. But in our fallenness, we've never known that which is completely love. And our entire being, having suffered the effects of sin, well, we know what it does. We know what it, attempt, what it attempts to do with love. It tries to redefine love. It tries to remake love in its own image. Away from he who is love. Unless or until he reveals it to us. Unless or until that bentness is repaired, we pursue pale and insufficient imitations of love. We go after things that are less than he who is. Unless or until that bentness is repaired, we'll keep searching for what we think is good, what we think is love. And we come into this time of year, and the wonder of what we celebrate as Christmas is that love came down at Christmas time. He who is love. It's not that love had been unknown, because what had God done throughout all of time? He created because of love. He sustained because of love. Because he could have just washed his hands of the whole thing, but he didn't. At Christmas, the wonder is that love came down at Christmas. God had communicated his love. He'd done it through his word and his works throughout history. He gave promises that he kept and that he's keeping. He'd given kings. But even the best of those kings had been a, a failure when it comes to the grand assessment. He'd given prophets. He'd given priests. He gave protection, even in the darkest of days. But now love puts on flesh. The fancy word is incarnation. Now love puts on flesh, takes on a face that could be touched. Eyes that could be looked into. Ears that could be whispered into and that would, would hear. Hands that could reach out and touch. Feet that could go to places of need. Love takes on that which he created to live among men. He comes as a baby into the world that he would be made like us in every way. That one day we might be able to be redeemed completely, body and soul. 
He had always been a God at hand, but now the king and his kingdom were at hand in a way they had never been before. That's part of the wonder of Christmas. Later on, as he got older in his public ministry, he even said the kingdom was in their midst in Luke 17, 21, that it was in their midst among them. And the wonder of what happened, what took place as he came, is that the world would never be the same. And so we have this verse that many of us will hold on to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that giving... Part of what we celebrate in that giving is it starts at Christmas. That's where that eternal Son of God took flesh into himself and came to accomplish everything that had been promised and that had been pointed forward to. The context of the passage, he's been speaking at this point with this religious leader named Nicodemus who came to him at night because he didn't want it to be seen most likely. And he says, we know that you're a messenger. We know that you're a prophet sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless they're from God. And Jesus has been teaching them, and he talks about being born again, born through the Spirit. And Nicodemus, he doesn't get it. He says, how can these things be? Can a man enter into his mother's womb and second time and be born again? Jesus, and he doesn't dope slap him. But he does say, you don't get it. He says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's what he's been telling Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. After he hasn't understood what Jesus meant by needing to be born again and to see the kingdom of heaven, what's required, Jesus speaks to him such. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 13, in context, it's an allusion to a question that was raised in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Nicodemus wouldn't miss this. And Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Not coincidentally, Jesus has just spoken of the wind in this passage. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And that's where Proverbs 30, verse 4 leaves it. But Jesus doesn't leave it there in in the illusion. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus gives the answer to the question. And the answer comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In alluding to this question and then giving the answer, Jesus has just told Nicodemus and he's told us who he is. This is that one that the Ancient of Days gave all authority to. This is that Son of Man who is the one who is the judge. And then he goes on. So he's answered it. And then he's going to repeat that the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he refers to God's deliverance from God's judgment, one of the judgments in the wilderness that he meted out against the children of Israel. 
They were grumbling about the fact that they didn't have food, but then in the same grumbling they say, well, this food that we really don't like. And these fiery serpents came among them and started biting them, and, and they cried out for deliverance. And Moses says, what should I do? And God says, you're going to make this, this fiery serpent set it up on a pole, and you're going to raise it up, and when they look to it, they'll be healed. God delivered them from that judgment that he had delivered them unto. And Jesus uses that here, and that's the context. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that one who's the answer to he who ascended, descended from heaven, he must be lifted up. But he doesn't leave it there, so there's no question in the mind that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this Son of Man must be lifted up for the similar purpose that whoever looks to him who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, make note of something here. There's a verbal parenthesis. Look at chapter, or look at verse 15 again, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look at the end of verse 16. Have you noticed this before? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's repetition. What's in the middle of it? What do those parentheses surround? The evidence of God's love. For who? The world by doing what? Giving his son, which the implication is that this is the son of man that he's giving. There's a wonder here. So there's these verbal parentheses that are present. And what does it set apart? It sets apart the act of God's love. It sets apart God's holy one. And so when we talk about love here, we see for God so loved the world. It's in light of what he's told to Nicodemus. For God so loved what? The world. And in the Gospel of John, the world is often used to speak of opposition to God. Those who hate him. Those who are his enemies. And we know through the teaching of Scripture that all of us in our natural condition, natural, in our fallen condition, that's us. Enemies of God. But in spite of that, for God so loved the world, those who were opposed to Him. And we, we see this unfold. We see Jesus in His earthly ministry continue to go to those who actively oppose Him. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't read them the riot act. He interacts with them maybe a little forcefully than sometimes we think would be all right, but he's not sinning in that. He's putting before them the truth of God. He's calling them to repent and to place their trust in the one who is to come, namely himself. We see him so gentle with the least of these. And we see this unfold as he continues to go to the world, which it's interesting that the world and the people that he sent to are the Jews. They're included in that group because of the fullness of what's to be brought in through him. But then later on, as what he's done is explained, we're given it in stark relief in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul helps us understand, for God so loved the world that he showed his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But in order for that to happen, he had to send him, and this is what we celebrate, his sending. God so loved the world that he gave, and here when we come into Christmas time, we come into the coming of our Savior, we look into the eyes of this little baby, and we go, this is the one? 
Yes, this is the one. That's not how I would have done it. Good. Because you don't know how to do what needs to be done. The one who does know what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. He's the one who's doing it. And so God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave. He gave. What did he give? Well, he gave a promise. And he gave a person. That promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 was some call the Proto-Evangelion, or the first evangel, the first proclamation of the gospel. It's, 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 it's in shadows because it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In reference to the one who would eventually come through Eve. The bruise of the head is a fatal blow. The bruise of a heel is something that hurts, but it can be recovered. So a promise of one to come. And all of the Old Testament unfolds, and you see it even in naming early on, and we've mentioned this before. By the time you get to Noah, it's perhaps this is the one that God will bring us freedom through. But he doesn't. He sets apart Israel and he gives them kings and priests and prophets. And we see how that goes. Fits and starts and some good ones and some really not great ones. And then silence. And after 400 years of silence, that promise that was there back in Genesis 3.15 as it's been being worked out and brought forth a young girl in Nazareth is recognized as blessed. Her fiancé has some questions because she shows up with a child and he's like, how did this happen? And in Matthew one twenty one, the angel of the Lord comes and he says, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that promise that he gave so many thousands years ago in Genesis 3.15 to now Matthew 1.21, that promise is coming. A few months later, out in a field outside of Bethlehem, after they'd taken this long journey that they were required to take on Luke 2.11, there's shepherds that are out in the field watching their flocks by night, and an angelic chorus appears before them and proclaim, part of what they proclaim is, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the one who shall bruise the head of the serpent and whose heel will be bruised. The one who will save the people from their sins. He gave a promise, and that promise pointed to a person. But not just any person. That person. When we come back to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave a promise, but He gave a person, and that person is His only Son. The Greek, it's monogenes. Mono means one. Genes means of its kind. It's a single of its kind. It's the only. It's what the King James uh, 
translates as only begotten. He's the only one of his kind. Because God is a father. And because God does not change and God is eternal, that means he's eternally been a father. If God at some point was not a father and he becomes a father, what has he done? He's changed. But God never changes. There's no shadow of turning or variation within him. Because God is a father and because God does not change, that necessarily requires that Jesus has eternally been the Son of God and is the only one of his kind. Jesus didn't begin being at Christmas time. He has always been. It's where he took flesh upon himself. It's where he be, became part of the create that the creation that he made, he took unto himself. And so this monogenes, this single of its only kind, what is it? He is fully man. He takes flesh unto himself. To what effect? Because no man could go before God and argue his case on his own merits except for one who is fully man and fully God. And that's what we find here staring back at us from this animal trial. Fully man, what was the effect? In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, we're told there's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Back up just a second. The man Christ Jesus who what? Gave himself. Did you catch, did you notice that he gave? It comes up in the passage. He gave himself. It wasn't just on the cross either. He gave himself to come in this humblest of forms. He comes taking everything that is man unto himself except for sin. Because one of the things that we forget, and one of the lies that so often we sometimes get you know, distracted into, is that man's natural state is to be a sinner, but not as God created him. Not as God created him. Because God created Adam without what? Without sin. Adam chose it. So man, in his natural created state, was without sin. Jesus comes and he lives as a man and doesn't give into any sin. He's fully man. Truly man. And notice that the Father and the Son gave. But it's not enough for him to be fully man. He also has to be fully God. And this is where, when we talk about the incarnation and how one can be truly God and truly man, our minds start to get a cramp. How does that work? Your homework, if you would like to go, check it out. There's this thing called, well, there's the Bible. We need to read it. The whole thing's great. <laughs> but there was an old guy, many, 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 many years ago, his name was Athanasius. And he wrote down what is considered throughout the church to be the orthodox, the right expression of that. Okay? And so Athanasius was involved in the Chalcedonian Creed, which focuses a lot upon how Jesus is fully man and fully God. And it's arguably one of the best definitions of how that can work. It won't answer all your questions because it's, it's a depth that is unplumbable. But it's a significant help that's there for us. 
that was written by older brothers and sisters. I encourage you to check it out. Within Scripture, we come to this reality that he's revealed as fully man. We know he got tired. We know that he was hungry. We know that he suffered in pain. We know all this. We know that we, he grew in knowledge and wisdom and in stature. But he's also fully God. And where do we find that? Well, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he tells us this. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness, which translated at the most basic level is the full fullness, in case you missed it. For in him all the fullness, not just all and not just the fullness, but all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here we have the testimony that all the fullness of God, that is all that is God is in him. He said this, he, he said this to one of his disciples. Show us the Father and we'll believe. Have I been with you so long, Philip? You don't know that when you look at me, you look at the Father. Truly God, truly man, so that he would come and that he would give. He's a person. He took on flesh and lived among us. He who has walked heavenly halls is now laid in an animal stall from whence he will grow and he will be that Savior who delivers all who will come to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave. The Father, he, he gave. The love of the Father, because of the love of the Father, He sent the beloved Son into the world to save us. He sent Him in humility and glory. Think about the birth. There's not much more humble means than where? A stable, in a feeding trough. But while he's subject to that, humili that humility or that humiliation, what's going on outside? He didn't let him come without some glory because what's taking place in the fields? A choir concert that, whether we like choir concerts or not, we would all want to go to because it's the heavenly chorus. It's the heavenly hosts. It's God's angelic warriors gathered to sing about and for their king. That was the beginning of his life, and at the end of his life, there's humility and glory as well, for he's, he's, he's nailed to a cross, treated as a criminal. He who'd never done anything wrong, he sinned in any way. The humble death of a cross and raised up. But he was laid where? In rich man's grave. Yes, that's the beginning of exaltation. 
We can argue that the beginning of exaltation actually takes place on that horrible piece of torture, that cross, because he's raised up so that what? So that all the eyes of the world would look to him. But glory comes also in three days later as he walks out of that tomb. So the Father, the love of the Father, sent the beloved Son into the world to save us, and he did so, so humbly and so gloriously. But it's not just the Father who gave, the Son gave. He gave the love of the Son for the Father and His people. He gave freely of Himself that love might be known and love might be restored. What did He give? He gave His obedience. He said, it's my joy to do all of my Father's will. He was obedient in every way. In every day. As He walked and was obedient to parents. If He had a, if he, if he, if he had a site manager on His job, he was obedient there as a worker. And as he walked through every part of his earthly ministry, he wasn't deficient in obedience in any way. He was obedient to the full measure. He gave his life. We see that. We recognize that. It wasn't just one moment on the cross. He lived his life for us. Because remember, what does God's law require? Perfect obedience. How many of us have been that? In theology, it's called the active obedience of Christ. Praise God for the active obedience of Christ, because what is that? That's His keeping the law in the fullest measure with no any bit of taint to it. It's perfect. And it was for us. So that we in Him are treated as though we were perfectly obedient. Praise God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it, is what J. Gresham Machen said as he prepared to meet his Maker. So he gave his obedience. He gave his life. He gives his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He gives to us not just His obedience, but His full righteousness. That we, whose best works are as filthy rags, would be known as righteous and His. The Son gave all of that. And you know, there's one more. Father, Son, who do we have left? The Spirit. The Spirit, He gave. The love of the Spirit gives the Son to His people. Because what does the Spirit do? What was your heart before Christ came? Scripture tells us it's stone. But he says, my spirit will remove the heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh, a heart that lives. The hearts of flesh in the place of a heart of stone, the spirit, he gives. He gives that. So that what? So that we might believe, so that we might trust, that we might follow, that we might know life in place of death. The spirit, he gives renewed minds. Minds that receive the truth. 
and are awed both by what they understand and by what is still hidden from them and are content for God to reveal what he's going to reveal as he will reveal it in his time. That's content to say in the midst of whatever's going on, I don't know how he's working, but I know he's working because he has promised that he's always at work. A renewed mind is content and rejoices in that. What does the Spirit give? The love of the Spirit gives the Son to His people. He gives the hearts of flesh. He gives renewed minds. He gives hearing ears. Because without hearing ears, we won't hear His voice. Because we know that His sheep hear His voice. And they respond. He gives hearing ears. He gives seeing eyes. Eyes that see Him. All we have to do is read the accounts of the gospel and we meet people who are blind all over the place, not just physically blind, but those who see him walk before them, confess the truth of God and what he's doing in him, and they don't what? They don't see it. So he gives eyes to see. And he gives able bodies to do what he's called us to do, to go where he's called us to go. Don't see that as, well, that means I'm going to be perfectly physically well all of my life, all of this earth life. No, not necessarily, but he's given you a body to do what? To serve and glorify him in. So hearts of flesh, renewed minds, hearing eyes, or hearing ears, seeing eyes, able bodies, freedom. Freedom. He gives freedom to those who have been held in chains. Because where were you before? You were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. Whether you recognized it or not, at some point you did if you've come to Christ. He gave you freedom. And why? Because he loves. The Spirit gives love. Remember, 1 John 4, 8 tells us what? God is love. Well, no surprise, the one who is love, what does he give his children? Love and an ability to do something they've never done before. Which is to what? To love. Because in that same chapter in 1 John 4, 9, it says we, speaking to believers, we what? We love because. So he's told us the reason we can love, the reason we love is caused, is because he what? He first so, just so we got it straight, who loved first? What do we mean by first? That which is first. You can't use the same word to define the word. I get it, right? Front of the line. Nobody before him. Because he first loved us. We can love. 
so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here at Christmas, we rejoice to look in the manger recognizing who it is that's there and knowing that as we recognize Him today, as we grow, we're going to recognize Him more fully. And you might come to that manger and you might laugh out loud because of where He has you in that moment. You might weep with tears you've never known before because of how He's at work. You might come and say, I'm just so frazzled and there's nothing I can do, but I know who you are and I know what the Word says, and I know why you're here. Thank you. Or we might decide to join Andrew Peterson in a snippet of what he wrote when he said, So sing out for joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing. Well, he gave up his pride, and he came here to die like a man. The Son of God. The Son of Man, born for you to save you from your sins. He gave and so proved His love beyond the shadow of a doubt. He accomplished 1 John 3.18. Remember 1 John 3.18? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not that God didn't talk. It's not that He has talked. And it's not that He isn't talking. He's not saying that we don't talk. We do. But we also what? We don't just love in word or talk, but we also love in deed and in truth. We see the Son of God doing exactly that. Receive what He's given. Life in Christ in place of death. Give of what you've received. Life in Christ in place of death. Bear witness to the love that He's given and the death that it has removed. Because He has given, so we give. That we would imitate our Savior and so prove the love He's given us and that He gives to whosoever will come. He's given us this day and each day to do so. So come. Let us adore Him again and again and without end. Amen.